Happy New Wandon Valley Year. Hello and welcome to A Country Podcast. I'm Melanie Tate and hello to you, Kim Lester. Hello, how are you? How was your Christmas, yada yada, all that? Look, my Christmas was so fantastic that I'm planning a trip to the Isle of Skye, the most remote part of North Scotland next year. Does that say anything to you about that what Christmas was sounds like? really interesting and like a story for another time but also sounds like the perfect opportunity to get out some of those Wandon Valley winter woolies that you have no use for at this time of year. Exactly that's the dream. How about you Kim? How was yours? Yeah it was pretty good. It was quiet, very subdued. We hung around in Brisbane and since you know Omicron outbreaks and whatnot I've kind of just been scared to step out the door for the last little while which some people would say yeah I agree. And others would just go, what are you doing? Live your life. And I just don't know where to go, where to stand on that. Are you triple vaxxed? Triple vaxxed, yes. yes. But the kids, I've got I've got kids and they've had their first dose and we're just waiting until they're fully vaxxed before yeah. we get too cavalier. Sounds pretty sensible, Kim. Yeah. So, Kim, today we have got so much to look forward to. We're going to talk with child actor, John Leary, Mm. who was in our episode but has gone on to have an actual career as a character actor and we're going to hear more about that. Plus, we are going to – look, it's a personal um, favourite moment of mine when Cops the Musical comes to (laughs) Wandon Valley and we're going to be talking about that. But first, how about we get stuck into that recap, Kim? Ain't Misbehaving, Season 10, Episodes 81 and 82. Let's do it. Well, in the first episode, after getting a new pair of dentures, Esme starts hearing voices. Of course, Bob and Cookie think she's channeling the dead and they can't wait to find some way to exploit that. But it turns out that she's just hearing an AM signal playing the local radio through her teeth. Uh, Steve and Anne are doing their thing on the farm. Hang on a second. People are coming home and it's causing doors to slam and big footsteps to go bang, bang, bang. Steve and Anne are doing their thing on the farm, but the rickety old tractor goes bust and Steve needs a bank loan to get a new one. The only problem is the bank manager is a creepy creepleton who knows exactly how <laughs> to proposition a client without ever saying overtly, I'll give you this loan in exchange for sex. And so, well, of course, Steve knows exactly what he's suggesting, She still doubts her instincts Mm. and tries telling herself that she imagined it. Does that sound familiar? It sounds so familiar. I actually really love the way they did this, but we'll get to that, won't we? Yeah, definitely. Meanwhile, an out-of-towner is killed in a car accident, leaving behind her son, who at first seems very quiet because he's struck with grief. But as Matt and Lucy take him home and try to care for him, they soon realise that Daniel is autistic. Daniel's father, who left six years earlier because he couldn't cope with Daniel's behaviour, comes back for him and this time he's determined to care for his son instead of placing him in institutional care. Finally, Mel, you're going to like this one. Frank is the writer, producer, director and star of Cops the Musical. And boy, isn't the pressure starting to show. He is cranky in this episode. (laughs) But when his leading lady, Anne, loses her voice at the very last minute, Steve steps in. And, well, not to be ageist, Mel, I really hope there wasn't a kissing scene Oh, me too. <laughs> Beautiful young Steve with all those old blokes yeah. at the end. Yeah, it, it was a bit much, wasn't it? Yeah, but, but wasn't she beautiful? What a beautiful performance. She's beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Uh, it was It was really – tell me what you thought about these episodes just in general, Kim, because i got to admit, sitting down to watch them, the first episode I was so bored <laughs> the whole way through and I kind of thought – I want to make a rule for our last five episodes that we don't do anything past season seven. (laughs) I mean, I don't think that that's going to be possible, but it perked up in the second act for sure. I mean, the second episode. What did you think? Yeah, I know what you mean. I think that I'm less invested in the later seasons. Anything sort of after Alex has left just hasn't really grabbed me as much. But I think that's partly because we've done a few six-parters like the Bethany episodes and the Sophie episodes where we had a lot more time to spend with those characters and I think that the way that we watch this show where we're jumping in and out it it makes it harder to get really excited like I still haven't 
I still don't, I don't think I've seen, oh, no, I have actually, um, but we haven't covered yet an episode that has Kim Wilson in it. No, we haven't. No. no. And um, same with Benice. We haven't covered an episode with her yet. So there's like, there was so many changes and character changes in those last years. The other thing I've noticed about how the, and this is why I think the earlier years work so much better, even actually mm-hmm. pre season five, I, I, I'm a purist for the first four years of a country practice. Mm-hmm. And it's because so much more of the heavy lifting is done with the guests um, in each episode of the storyline heavy lifting. And the people in the town are sort of there to be the townsfolk and the community and this, you know, this stuff's happening around them. Whereas I think in the later seasons, more stuff happens to the main characters and it does feel a bit more soapy because of that. Do you think? Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Did you have any musings while you were watching this? Well, my main one was holy cow, Frank is a grumpy bum in this. I don't think I'd like – is that how people behave in the theatre, Mel? I don't have really any theatre experience. It's so funny because one of my musings was I love Frank. <laughs> is it because he keeps everyone on track? <laughs> Maybe I'm Frank in a theatre. I just felt he cared so deeply about everything. That's true. And he was so, you know, and he. I just love what a renaissance man he is. I love that he's a copper and he's also, you know, a, a theatre imp- impresario and writer and a rose. A rose grower, know, yes. A rose grower. Yes, a green thumb. I just, yeah, I loved that about it. But you found him just too cranky for words. Well, he you? was super cranky, definitely. But I could understand why because I'd get pretty frustrated with, you know, having to deal with. Imagine Bob and Cookie. Bob and Cookie shenanigans were, you know, off the rails this oh. week. Yeah. Will the bad cop come good in the end? Will the good cop save his brother from prison? And who will win the girl? Does that all make sense to you? Yes, it's all clear now, Sergeant. Yeah, well, at least we know all about it. Oh, I'm so thrilled to hear that. Because you've been rehearsing the thing for the last six weeks. <laughs> they really, like, you just know that James Davin had been to the writer's room saying, okay, we need lots of Bob and Cookie. Yeah, we need some Bob and Cookie week. in this one. What were, what were your other thoughts about the episode, your other musings? My other musings about this episode, I don't really have any others. What about you, Mel? I had just a couple. One was there are so many dogs to keep track of in this episode, I thought, in the first one. Um, I loved the details of the School of Arts in the the set design because it actually really looked like a School of Arts. It had a Wandon Valley War memorial board Mm -hmm. up. It was just the details of that I really, really loved. When you said there are dogs to keep track of, I thought, what dogs? Is she talking about that episode where the guy's dog kept stealing the dog food? That wasn't these ones was it and it was yeah it was yeah (laughs) you better explain that storyline I forgot all about that one there's an old bloke who's in everything from the 80s why am I forgetting his name now Willie Fennell was it Mm -hmm. Willie Fennell He's played by Willie Fennell, who, in a bit of 1980s trivia, his daughter was Miss Jane on Mr. Squiggle. That's a little really? bit of, um, yeah, a little bit of 80s trivia. But he has a dog who keeps stealing dog food, and that's a stupid storyline. Dogs can't smell. I dog can't believe food you left it out of your recap. <laughs> I forgot. I just thought it was with other episodes that I watched because I watched. So I did a bit good. of cramming <laughs> this week, and <laughs> I didn't realize. Yeah, mixed them up. But there were also also all these other dogs that Matthew was taking care of and there were just so many dogs. Mm. Um, the other, There were just two other musings I had. One mm-hmm. was that I loved it when Luke called um, Cops the Musical Phantom of the Cop Shop. <laughs> I thought that was really, <laughs> really funny. But also um, I noticed something that I noticed quite a bit actually when we're watching this show, how a country practice characters, the main characters, all seem to always know what's best for other people. Mm. And that really was coming through a lot in the first episode to the point where it was really irritating me um, about the little autistic boy. But we'll we'll get to that yep. in a moment. But they're my musings, Kim. Not very profound, but um, I don't think these were very profound episodes. The second one was much better than the first. Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of profundity, was there? Yeah. So... What, let's let's get into the episodes themselves. What do you think of the portrayal of autism in this? It's really interesting, isn't it? And and kind of, I mean, I'm sure you're going to do it as our social issue this week, Kim. But I am so glad that 
the conversation has really moved forward in our society on autism and, and the spectrum of autism and also the way that people treat families with autism as well as people with autism. I just was really um, – and also the way that parents uh, would treat a child with autism today and strangers. Mm. It just felt like it's so different now. Like there is just no way you would yell at a child in a shop now that's not your own because they're knocking over plants or you something would hope. like that. Yeah, for sure. You would hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, you know, there would be an acknowledgement that there was something going on with that child, you'd hope, and a certain amount of patience. Yeah. But- There's a lot more. It's interesting looking back looking at these portrayals of how people, like people's attitudes towards children generally as well, before they realise that Daniel is autistic. And can I just point out, and this isn't so much a correction as just something that a lot of people I think don't know, and it's something I've learned in recent years, is however a person wants to be identified should be how you uh, address them. Mm -hmm. And so if a person says, I'm you know, I am disabled versus I have a disability. Really, it's, you know, it's up to the person. But um, in the case of autism, the majority, the vast majority of people prefer to be identified as autistic as opposed to as having autism. And the reason for that was put in a really great and a really great explanation from someone that I heard once is it sounds like autism is something that you can pick up and put down. If you say you have autism, whereas being autistic is a big part of a person's identity and it's an identity that a lot of people own and, you know, and everybody's different. I'm I'm trying very hard not to generalise because mm. this is not my lived experience, but I've even spoken to people who would really like to see the D taken out of the acronym Autism Spectrum Disorder because treating it as though it's a disorder as opposed to just a neurotype mm. is... Um, we need to just kind of shift the way we think about it. Mm. So um, if I say people are autistic, if I refer Mm. to Daniel as autistic, just know that that's why, basically. Well, isn't it interesting, though, that we we know from what we know about a country practice that what we're getting in this episode would have been the most up-to-date interpretation of what was going on Mm. with autism at the time, yet there was a lot of language around what was wrong with him. Mm You know, this kind of which we wouldn't have that language now. And also about his inability to love. That was a huge part of the story, which, of course, we know is completely, yeah, you know, complete rubbish about autistic people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's been, yeah. yeah. And it's so a real it's, misconception. I don't know. It's It'd be so – this is one, actually, Kim, we should have watched with an autistic person. I agree. It's actually one of the reasons, I guess, if I can open up a little bit about why we're not going to keep doing this podcast, is one of the things I really find challenging with doing the social issues is that I never want to represent anyone's lived experience without involving mm. them in mm. the conversation. And if we had more resources for this podcast, then 100% that would be every single week we'd be we'd have – a person whose experience is absolutely is that. Yeah. Anyway, hopefully the way that I do it this time will you know, be okay. But Kim, you always do it beautifully. <laughs> what I was going to say was, um, I found it really interesting, even just in general, the way people talked about kids in this episode. You know, where they lost their temper with Daniel really easily, and at one point Matt said, "Well, I've had enough of this, Daniel. It's time you stop behaving this way." You know. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. I don't know what you call all right, but I have had enough. Look, I'll deal with it. But you shouldn't have to deal with it. All right, Daniel, what the devil's going on with you? I mean, I certainly lose my temper with my kids more often than I care to admit, and I think most parents – actually, I'm happy to admit that because I think most parents feel shame about losing their temper with their kids, but kids are frustrating and you lose your temper. But I wouldn't – lose my temper with other people's kids it's kind of Mm. I know my kids behavior spectrum and I know when their when their behavior is about being dysregulated and when it's just about pushing boundaries and so you know we work within that I would never do that to somebody else's kids because I don't know their spectrum don't you feel though the 80s though was such a free-for-all yeah. with all that sort of stuff like I remember being told off by parents kid, par- kid totally. friends parents and I've been joking to my son people I'm gonna get letters about this this is a really 
Oh, this is maybe not the best thing to admit to saying, but I've been joking to my son lately because he, um, like, he was just not paying attention the other day and he pulled a whole bunch of, like, dishes off the shelf and smashed a glass and, you know, and we were just frustrated, but we didn't yell and I just kind of went, oh, that's so frustrating, don't stand in it, just move out the way. And as we were cleaning up, I said, you know, Patrick, if you'd been born, if you were an 80s kid, you would have got a flogging for that. <laughs> you realise that this is the kind of thing that kids got floggins for, don't you? <laughs> so true. Yes. And it was more it's just a, so true. It was more of a comment on my own blasé reaction to it, as opposed to yeah. me thinking that he deserves a flogging. <laughs> I never got any floggings. I was I was lucky enough to be raised without floggings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Kim. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, how the um, how the sort of disciplining of Daniel, I found it very disturbing from, yeah. a, from a 20, 22 yeah. point of view, like particularly at the grave side. Yes. When he was processing that huge moment in his own way and the father was trying to get him to behave, you know, like I just... I don't know. And the father was so the father was up and down like a bloody roller coaster. And the do you know? I time. have empathy for that. I think you are up and down like a roller coaster as a parent, especially if you're coming to terms with a lot of different emotions. One being, you know, the death of somebody that you love, if not used to love, the death mm. of the mother of your child, coming back into your child's life after being absent for so long. Like, you know, he's going through a lot, and I get. I don't want to criticize a parent mm. for having up and down emotions at all. And he's he's also pretty much coming into it new because yeah. he hasn't been around for six years. And there was that, did you ever read that beautiful book, uh, Far From the Tree by Andrew Solomon? No. Oh, it's incredible, Kim. It's this book. So Andrew Solomon wrote a book about families who have a child born to their family who is not like them mm-hmm. in some way. So there's a chapter about Down syndrome children a chapter about autistic children. There's another chapter about children born of rape. There's uh, one about there's all all these sort of wow experiences that that a parent you know it's called far from the tree. Yeah. You know, like you know how the expression is the apple doesn't far, fall very far from the tree. This is like where the apple does fall far from the tree. And I remember remember reading that book. Um, you know, in my early thirties, when having children was st- still really an option. And thinking about um, what it would be like to be a parent of the children in the various chapters mm-hmm. of of that book, and the two chapters where it, where it looked very much more challenging than the other chapters were the was the autism um, chapter mm-hmm. and also the the schizophrenic yeah the schizophrenia chapter simply because. You know, there's this kind of agreement, well, not an agreement, but there's this this idea that when we have a child that that child will just love and be demonstrative, like love us but be demonstrative about that love. Mm. Like if we want to hug the child, we can hug the child. If we want to, you know, we'll always be able to communicate it that if we just love it enough, it'll be a whole human mm-hmm. being who is this, who is that, you know, all that kind of stuff. And in both of those chapters, there are roadblocks with both of those conditions to being able to have a traditionally loving relationship. Mm-hmm. And I feel like this, they probably do do a very good job of, of showing that with the roller coaster yeah. of the father. Yeah. But I, I just wanted him to be calm and loving yeah. because, you know, surely that's what that child needed. But oh God, who knows? Who knows? Um, you're going to talk about that. So should we move on yeah. quickly to um, what do you think of the sexual harassment stuff? Well, as we said, that portrayal was, I just thought, spot on in the way that he, not that, look, I've I've not had this experience myself, but in the way that he worded that, uh, he alluded to why don't I come back later tonight? Do you have a boyfriend? maybe just think about whether you really want this loan. You know, he never actually explicitly said, these are the terms. If you give me sex, I'll give you this loan. And no one ever does. No one ever explicitly says that. But you still know. You still know that Mm. that's what's being suggested. And that's where the gaslighting happens, that you think, you know, I can't actually 
prove that that's what being, is being suggested, even though it is. What do you think? I thought it was like a, that could have been in a 2020 mm. drama. It was so spot on. And the whole conversation around it was spot on as well. So Stevie confesses to Anne, her sister, what's going on. Thank God. I thought she was going to keep it a secret because mm. she was going to be too proud and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Because it's embarrassing. That's yeah. the thing about sexual harassment. It's embarrassing yeah. because, like you said, it's never overtly. Well, it's not never overtly, but it's quite often not overtly mm. um, harassy. Yeah. So you feel like a dick calling it out. Yeah. You think, oh, do I sound like I've got tickets on myself or something? Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> you the put thing. it oh, back who on yourself. Sexually harass me. Yeah. That sort of. It's. It's really. You know. And that whole. Oh, I was just joking. Or you know, this kind of thing. It's just gross. Mm. And. Um, the, I thought that they were going to be, because it's like, you know, 1990, I thought that they'd probably, you know, do something to him to trick him into feeling embarrassed, but that that would be the end of mm. it. But Anne, the matron, the current matron, mm-hmm. was really great about it and made the point that he worked in a bank with six other women yeah. and he's probably doing that to them as well. So yep. if you can find it, you need to, you know, yeah. if you can find the strength to report it, please do. Yeah. So I thought it was very non-victim blamey. Very, you know, um, it was very modern. Like, and, it, and it's kind of sad to think we've come pretty much, we've gone, gone pretty much nowhere in 30 years. Mm. This conversation was happening back then yeah. in the exact same way that it's happening now and, and it's still going on. Yeah. It was also one of those great examples of an, a country practice episode where the dialogue is also an information pamphlet because yes. <laughs> she was saying, that's sexual harassment. You can contact the Australian Human Rights Commission. <laughs> <laughs> and if you don't, I'm going to. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> so, Kim, yeah. let's let's deep dive into – are we deep diving into autism in the 80s, the 90s, yeah, or what are we doing? Basically, we're, we're not really getting out of the shallow end, to be perfectly honest. And, yeah, we're going to talk about just what autism actually – is or what what we understand it to be now and how, a little bit about how it was perceived in the 90s when this episode went to air. All right, Kim, let's get into the shallows, the shallows. <laughs> Do you know when I saw that movie and I think about this now every time this happens in a movie is um, the person I saw it with was she had a music background much like yourself she could actually sing and play instruments unlike me (laughs) and when Lady Gaga came on and started to sing to that song that um Bradley Cooper's whole band knew how to play my friend's just like oh yeah amazing they didn't even rehearse it (laughs) yeah it's incredible absolutely (laughs) the magic of movies I just wonder if maybe musicians are just intuitive like that they just know where to go well, I think that some, like jazz musicians certainly yeah. are, like because there's certain just chords where places, you know, there's just chords, places go, I don't know about that song. Though. No, not so much. I think your friend might be right. They were harmonising. Although I just felt, and- I feel like just in that moment, <laughs> we'll have to do that as a weep here on our new podcast, <laughs> Oh, we Kim. definitely will. Definitely d- need to do that. In fact, we should do all three A Star Is Borns as a special because we love watching six hours worth of stuff. <laughs> but also we- I'm so curious because I'm, I, I was inconsolable about that movie, uh, the modern mm. one. I haven't seen the others, but I wonder how I'm going to react to the old ones. Oh, the the Barbara one is the best one. Really? See, I've heard it's- that the Judy one's the best. Oh, yeah, the Judy one's the best. Too. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. All right, autism, Kim. Moving back to a country podcast. These episodes went to air. It was the 29th and 20 and 30th of October mm-hmm. in 1990. The recession in the Gulf War were the stories of the moment and Bust a Move by Young MC was the number one song. Just for one week, just for that one week, mm. it was the number one song. I didn't even song. know that song. Do you remember it? Yeah. If you want, you got it, Bust a Move. No? no? Oh, Okay. Didn't make it to Robertson. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now it has with my wonderful rendition. (laughs) So let's talk autism. There's this great phrase that I hope helps people kind of begin to understand what I've been told, taught to understand about autism. If you've met one person with autism, Mel, you've met one person with autism. Mm -hmm. So according to autismspectrum.org.au, autism is a condition, and this is a modern 
uh, explanation. This is a current day explanation. It's a condition that affects how a person thinks, feels, interacts with others and experiences their environment. It's a lifelong disability that starts when a person is born and stays with them into old age. And every autistic person is different to every other, just like every other person is different to every other mm-hmm. person. Uh-huh. Uh, and this is why autism is described as a spectrum. Autism tends to be diagnosed around about two years old, and that is where a lot of the vaccination debate comes from because at this, it's around the same age that kids have that um, vaccine that was falsely, um, for, for a short period of time, there was a study that was debunked, very much debunked, that the one study this one too. study um, that uh, the, I can't remember which, it's the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was leading to autism. And that's absolutely not true. It just so happens that the kids have that at age two, and that's around the same time that diagnosis of autism can sort of start to happen. Um, so I wanted to just sort of start by reading this article to you from the age in 1990, just to give you a sense of how people understood autism when a country practice made this episode. So this is actually titled Towards Understanding Autism. Autism was first defined in 1943. Uh, It's one of the more misunderstood psychiatric disorders. So already I don't think psychiatric disorder is accurate anymore. anymore. Yeah. The behaviour demonstrated, particularly by young children, is often misunderstood as poor discipline because children do not appear to be different to others. And I apologise for this quote. Uh, Often children with autism are very good looking. She said it's not like Down syndrome, for example, where there is a visual difference. Yeah. Mm. Um, Autism affects four people in 10,000. I imagine those stats have changed a lot as we Mm. Mm. have so much more understanding of of what is autism and more people are diagnosed. Um, But, yeah, at the time autism affects four people in 10,000 and boys three times more frequently than girls. Which we also know to be incorrect. Yeah, it's really interesting. And there's, um, I don't know that it's actually uh, official, but there is sort of um, uh, some studies or hypothesis that sort of suggests that uh, girls are just more likely to be diagnosed later in life. And that's because some of their behaviours are able to mask um, some of the traits of autism that might sort of bring out a diagnosis or or start the process of a diagnosis happening. Thought to be present at birth, which is good. They already sort of see it as that. It's usually evident uh, by the age of 30 months and characterized by three distinct features, impaired social relationships, impaired language skills, and an insistence on sameness. People with autism tend to appear detached and immersed in their own world. They either ignore other people or use them to serve their needs. As one mother commented, heartbreak is realizing your baby doesn't leave you, needs you, but doesn't want you. And that was actually a line in the episode. I don't know if you remember this, Mel. He can't love me back. He doesn't know the meaning of the word. He needs someone, but it doesn't have to be me. Lack of eye contact and rejection of physical conduct, uh, contact are early signs and absorbing attachments to objects may replace human attachments. The severity of autism and some of the symptoms displayed vary from person to person. About half of the children afflicted don't learn to speak and others are very slow to do so. If the child can speak, it is used for one-way communication only. There is no idea of chatting. Problems with social skills are characteristic of autism. Autistic people find it difficult to understand social cues and signals and seem to lack empathy and responsiveness to others' needs and concerns. Rigidity, stereotyped behaviour and inflexibility, a desire for sameness are strong characteristics. The three main areas, speech, social skills and rigidity, can be viewed as the autistic person having an information processing difficulty. Therefore, if the person is having trouble coping with what they see, hear, feel uh, and smell and they cannot interpret, store or respond to this information appropriately, one method of coping is to develop a small repertoire of skills or obsessive behaviours which they feel are safe and secure. And look, that might actually define exactly the experience that some parents have with their autistic kids or that some autistic people have. 
but it's not everybody. It's such a spec, you know, it's a spectrum. It's a really mm. different uh, experience for everybody. And the spectrum thing's really interesting. So last year I produced a couple of interviews with an autistic music therapy expert, Alison Davies. She did one for Parental as Anything, which was the parenting, ABC parenting podcast that I used to work on with Maggie Dent. And the other one was for Conversations, which I worked on for a little bit. And you should go and check out those episodes. Like the conversations chat she did with Sarah Konoski was just wonderful. So she told me that people often mistake the spectrum as a line with low functioning at one end and high functioning at the other. But that's not really how it works. No one's personality is based on a single characteristic and functionality is fluid for all of us, you know. And so Mm. some things we can do in a really high functioning way and some things we uh, just you know I think we all get dysregulated about some things and we all struggle but also I don't say that to minimize the experience of autistic people because what can happen is Alison for example would be considered very high functioning but that dismisses the moments in her day when she is struggling to function because she's deemed as high functioning and so it's a real sort of it's much more of a Uh, you know, a circle or a squiggle than a linear experience for people. So just finally, Mel, and this is what I mean by we're just staying in the shallow end. In the shallows. I really, really just urge people to go and consume content that is made by autistic people so you can hear um, about their own experiences. But I found an advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald that was published on the day that these episodes went to air. Uh, it's this week's A Country Practice will show you the most heart-wrenching story you'll ever see. It's about a little boy named Daniel and after the show you'll want to help children like Daniel. You'll phone 0802082321, the Autistic Association of New South Wales. You know, wouldn't it be interesting to know what their Wednesday morning was like (laughs) after these episodes went to air? Because in actual fact, though, I mean, I don't think that I personally as a viewer, had I not known where the conversation had moved to with autism by now, I don't know whether I would have felt much hope for Daniel and his father. Really? Watching That's interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that deep dive Shallow deep that dive. shallow that little wade into the kiddie pool. What do Bridget Jones and um, yeah Bridget Jones and Mark Darcy do? They're, they're in the yeah the paddling pool. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, who have you got in the IMDb vault for us? Well, we've only got five more episodes of a country podcast left, and so there are people that we really need to talk about. Mm who we won't get another chance to. So today I actually don't want to talk about a guest star of the show. I want to talk about one of the main stars Mm -hmm. of the show, Sophie Heathcote. Mm. Um, So Sophie Heathcote played Stephanie Brennan for 117 episodes. Uh, She is, you know, the young farmer. Uh, She's kind of the – she's sort of like the Vicky really of this generation. The woman in the man's world. Yeah, she's the woman in the man, which you love these characters, don't you? Yeah, him in the for show. Sure. So she's the woman in the man's world. She's doing all of the all of the blokey things. Um, she's got sassafras. She's great. Um, so Sophie <laughs> Heathcote herself, though, was born. She's a Christmas Day baby. Oh, feel for Christmas Day, like our friend Ginger Gorman, the host of your other podcast, Seriously Social. Check it out. <laughs> Seriously Social. Check it out. She is a Christmas Day baby, and I reckon, and Ginger won't mind me saying this i think it screws people up a little bit (laughs) ginger won't mind me saying that because you don't get a day that's to celebrate you Mm. you know like everybody else in the world does so sophie heath so it just makes you i don't know like ginger's not screwed up but she's just eccentric and i i I, you think it's all down to her being born on christmas day christmas day birthday (laughs) i love her so much i love the eccentricity but it's christmas day birthday so sophie heathcote's also one of those she grew up with four brothers and she left home at 15 she was already getting really really into acting and she went to the actors center in sydney for a year when she was offered a role on a country practice and she said in one of the interviews I read with her that she really ummed and ahed about whether to take the role. I get the sense from her that she didn't like being in the one place for too long Mm. and she also, I don't know this, I'm just, you know, reading between the lines of New Idea and (laughs) the Daily Telegraph (laughs) and all of those places. 
and that part of being an actor for her was about discovering new things. So she was a bit scared to take on this role and be typecast. You know, I love how 17-year-old actors care about being typecast. <laughs> like seriously, wouldn't you just love as an actor to be, you know, we're in our 40s now. Well, I would, if I was an actor in my 40s, I would just love to be working. It's like what Georgie Parker said to me uh, in our episode, you know, a few episodes back yeah. where she said at that time when she left a country practice, she just wanted to go and, explore and do other things and have other experiences and now that she's on home and away and she's very happy to just stay there and if she'd been you know 50 something when she was working on a country practice she would have been more than happy just to stay there those dogs hey can you cut that out hang on a sec i'll just see what's we don't need that apparently i saw this tiktok where we're meant to say to them Thank you. Thank you very much, <laughs> but we don't need that. My dog trainer would disagree. <laughs> really? Is, she hers is, well, no, hers bah. is uh-uh. Uh-uh, that's a good one. Uh-uh. Do you want to come and be part of this? Oh, hello, Goldie. Goldie, Goldie is still wearing oh. the tie that you tweeted about. It's so funny. <laughs> it's it's so from the cute. groomer. And people think I'm nuts walking around town with a dog with a I mean, you could have taken it off, but <laughs> you could have taken it off and you no, chose not it just looks to. So stu- like cute and it's funny. adorable. Uh, she's so funny. Um, so where were we? Oh, yeah. So she decided after talking to one of her acting coaches to take it and then did the show, like we were saying, for pretty much about two years. And she died a bit of a Molly death. Not a, It wasn't drawn out, mm. but she died, I think, breaking her neck riding a horse mm-hmm. is my understanding. And on Stevie's death and leaving a country practice, she's quoted as saying, when I was reading the script, there were tears streaming down my face and no, I won't be coming back. It really is goodbye. From this same article, she says she's adamant that her decision to quit a country practice was out of a need to explore other options and had nothing to do with the cast. I just wanted to relax and try something else, do some acting classes or study French at Sydney Uni. So she wow. she left. Yeah. And interestingly, she sort of did everything around the other way. She went off to NIDA then <laughs> after a country practice yeah. and went to NIDA for three years and graduated and got out and then did all sorts of things. So was in Water Rats and that great show Grassroots. She was in GP, Border Town, Echo Point. Do you remember Echo Point? No. Echo Point was this little tiny soap that was on for maybe one season, but it was Rose Byrne's first thing. And Rose Byrne, if it's the one I'm thinking of, just shone like a, you know what I mean? She was just such a star in it. Anyway. She's in Reckless Kelly, in all sorts of things. Um, Probably her most famous role after a country practice, though, was as Fiona Cassidy in Water Rats in 1996 and 1997. As she sort of went on, she moved away from acting a bit. She'd had very sensitive skin and so she made a skincare company called Key. Mm. Do you remember reading about that in the early 2000s? I do. I remember thinking, oh, that's very cool. Um, And so she had a skincare company, I think, that she started in 2000. Oh, no, 1998, I beg your pardon. And she retired from acting in 2001. She sold key in 2002 um, to a French cosmetics company. So I'm hoping that she was as rich as Zoe Foster Blake. Yeah. Who was sold, yeah, her skincare to Sephora or something and she's a gazillionaire now. <sighs> I mean, absolutely amazing. So in 2003, Sophie Heathcote and her husband, who's an advertising guy, they, they um, established a fundraiser, a yearly fundraiser called the Celebration of Life because their first child was born with um, strep B. Oh, God. Which is really, really scary in little babies and can kill them. Yeah. And they had quite a time of it. And I think that they uh, got into that fundraising as a result of that. Um, a few years later after that, uh, Sophie Heathcote and her husband moved overseas to New York. Um, I think that her husband had had got some sort of fancy um, advertising job. A madman job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was over there um, that she was diagnosed with melanoma mm. and with pancreatic cancer. Oh, God. So she was quite unwell and she's so, so young. Like what are we talking here? So... 
Uh, if she's born in 1972, are you good at maths? So, and she died around 2003, did you say? Well, she died, no, she died. So, so interestingly, she was fighting off um, skin and pancreatic cancer. Um, and she was having all sorts of therapies for that. Mm. And she died on January the, the 4th, 2006 mm. in America from a brain aneurysm. Oh, God, really? Yeah. So, so what she would have been in her early 30s, 34? yeah. Yeah. Very, very sad. And it was a huge story back here in uh, in Australia. Woman's Day did this, or Woman's Weekly, did this beautiful spread about her where basically they contacted actors from all the shows that she'd mm. been in. Everybody was devastated. Everybody thought she was hugely, hugely talented because she was. She had gone from doing these, and I watched a few of these things the other night, Kim, um, you know, being very sweet Stevie and there's that beautiful moment. In fact, let's play a little bit of it when this finishes of her getting on stage and singing a song and just being heavenly. Mm. She's just goes from being heavenly to being sort of a really, I don't think she's corrupt, but a really full-on counsellor and grassroots. And, you know, she played all sorts of different characters. So a really, really devastating thing. And I know that I've got a friend who was her um, roommate Mm. in the – I don't know, early whenevers, the early 90s or something like that. And I was talking with him about her months ago mm-hmm. um, because he knows about our podcast and he said, oh, Sophie, you know, she mm. was just so wonderful. She was like, and that's pretty much what you hear all the time about her when when she's mentioned. Yeah. So that's the very, very short life of Sophie Heathcote. Oh, so sad. So sad. The girl is left behind What can I do My boy in blue Oh, she's got a beautiful voice, doesn't she? Just gorgeous. Like when she started singing, I was thinking, what can you not do, mate? I know. Did she do musical theatre or anything? No, I don't wow. think so. Wow. No. Just cops the musical. Um. So, Kim... Now we're going to talk with the little boy who brought who brought Daniel to life, John Leary. John Leary has one of those great acting careers now. So he's appeared in pretty much everything since A Country Practice and he's got to be one of the only people who's about our age mm. who's still acting who acted in A Country Practice as a child. Yeah. You know, like everybody else seems to – Go on and well, do other yeah, because Emily is the other child actor we've spoken to, and she, Emily leading weight, and she uh, yeah. is, I think she's some kind of IT techie guru, something slash mum. Yeah, and Emily Nickel, who played uh, Chloe. little Chloe, she is not an actor mm-hmm. anymore either. So John is he? You will have seen him in everything. Google his face because, you know, he's, he's one of those faces where you've seen him in everything. Uh, I think most recently he's been in The Letdown, he's been in Glitch, uh, all sorts of things. So here's John Leary. John Leary, it's a big part for a young actor, this one. What sort of acting had you done before? Uh, I had done kind of outside school drama classes and from a very young age, I had been doing that. Like I think my kindergarten or first grade teacher had suggested to my mum that maybe drama classes would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I would in, I would benefit from uh, drama classes outside of school. So probably from about age six or seven, I, I was doing that. But that that's all. I hadn't. It, it is my. Uh, screen debut, <laughs> my <laughs> professional debut. How how old were you? I must have been. What was it? Eighty nine or ninety? Um, I I'm would have been twelve. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I had the audition, uh, and, and read it, and and then the next thing I kind of remember is is going in and and having wardrobe fittings and mm-hmm. and shooting. I know that uh, because m- my mum. Uh, was a nurse and I think because of the the nature of the the role being a a boy with autism like my mum actually did uh, a whole lot of research for me and Ah. and provided that she she used to work at uh, Westmead Hospital in the neurological ward so there was 
you, you know, like related kind of stuff there. So you were aware then of of having to uh, like learn about a character who was other than yourself. It was more than just like reading lines, obviously. Yes, because it was certainly away from how I am naturally, I guess. Mm-hmm. I guess I was aware of taking on a character and and, and doing things that, that I wouldn't normally do, yeah. You know, as a kid and it, with it being your first job, were you aware of so-called professionalism, you know, like um, – doing what what the director told you to do or being in the right place at the right time and all of that kind of stuff or was that something you learnt on the job i that ah oh, that's a curious question i think i was at the time i was probably naturally a rule follower anyway so so anyone in you know kind of positions of authority i would have like absolutely listened to and and you know been on my best behavior yeah yeah because television just looks so I'm not an actor obviously right. but it just seems to me there are so many things to remember and to do like to stand on this mark and to make sure your face is in a certain you know all these things yeah. that that I don't know how a child would know what well, to do yeah it's funny like I, I I can see watching it back I can see that there's moments where I'm like oh obviously I was told to walk in a particular kind of vector you know like yeah, there's a section where I'm walking alone through the hospital and I can remember the, the kind of mapping of which direction I'm, I'm meant to go and, yeah, stuff like that. I remember this, this one piece of advice from Georgie Parker who told me that if you have to look, if your eye line has to cross where the cameras are, to avoid looking at the camera, barreling the, the lens, the kind of trick is to like blink as you as your head move as your face moves across. So there's absolutely no danger that you will look into the camera. And I like I remember that so vividly, her kind of suggesting that that's that's how to do it. And have you used that throughout your career ever since? <laughs> I I kind of have. I, and I certainly did in that in the country practice. Yeah, yeah. I, I I have had limited experience with multicam, so the danger is is less of looking into the camera when there are fewer cameras right. and when you're not in a studio. Oh, that was, I was so looking forward to going through your back catalogue and looking for some blink acting. With the, <laughs> oh, what a there shame. might be. I I haven't looked at it, but there's. I, I did also work with Georgie Parker again, uh, you know, probably 15 years later on All Saints. And I, I, I actually remember, you know, telling her that she had told me or given me that advice. And, um, yeah, we, you know, had a giggle over that. And so I, I presume that I'd probably do it again on all saints. <laughs> <laughs> was it important in your in your growth as an actor if in terms of like being on set and thinking I can do this, I can make this into a career? Did it did it have anything to do with that? I was pretty much on on rails like heading toward this kind of career from a very young age. Like mm-hmm. as I said my, when my kindergarten or, or first grade teacher suggested to mum it it was that that I do extracurricular drama classes mm-hmm. it was clear from a from a very young age that I was going to be in show business in some way i started ballet classes when i was about five, four or five it's kind of a blurry line where where i actually started because i had two older sisters who were do, doing ballet and at you know the local suburban ballet school and I would just go naturally every Saturday morning and, you know, while they were doing their dance classes, I, I would kind of be hanging around. At the same time, uh, I, I kind of started doing drama classes and at school, at primary school, I, I would, on a Friday afternoon, I'd kind of be given like a five-minute slot to do a magic show or, you know, tell jokes or like all sorts of crazy things like 
I remember, it's quite weird, but I remember renting from the video store the stand-up specials of like Billy Crystal and weirdly Bill Cosby like is... Well, not weirdly for the 80s, weirdly now. No, not weirdly for the 80s, weirdly now. But but I would go to school and reproduce, (laughs) you know, bits of their stand-up. I was very much on rails headed toward this kind of career. And so a country practice did absolutely fit in Mm -hmm. in that kind of uh, career path, I guess. So we spent a lot of time on the podcast focusing on those guest characters and the the amazing character actors that went through the show over the 13 years, like incredible actors. And I would say, John, that in 2020, like if a country practice was being made now, we would probably be talking about you again. Do you know what I mean? Like you, you, you pop up everywhere in in um in all the TV shows. What is the landscape like in 2020? Oh, it's 2022 now. It's 2022. Yeah. yeah. How about for, that for an actor who is like a you know a character actor who goes from um show to show to show? How are, what's the landscape like at the moment? It's been tricky. Like the kind of years. Leading up to the pandemic were tricky. I, I feel like our Australian television output has kind of slimmed down. I mean, we were talking before about the the hundreds of episodes mm. of a country practice, and there's not. I mean, there's there's neighbours and and home and away, but it, it feels like there's nothing like it. There's nothing like a, a country practice and there's currently there's nothing like even All Saints or, mm. you know, those those dramas that thread the needle between soap and family drama, I guess. Mm. Um, and do 20-odd episodes a year, you know. Yeah. Like, there's nothing that does any more than about eight or ten. Yeah, now. that's right. Yeah. So I think... For actors like me, for people like me, where we're mid-career, or but not, uh, as you say, not you know, we're we're kind of character actors or, or in supporting roles. It does feel like there's been fewer avenues to to pursue that. Having said that, it was nice, you know. Last year, I picked up a, a great role in in the newsreader which is on abc where i was murray the the um editor uh and the, and i also had a little role in spreadsheet which is which is on paramount i think i think that's on mm-hmm. paramount plus where i was also called murray <laughs> quite weird <laughs> i had like in the in the last Two years I've I've played cops or people called Murray. So like <laughs> I don't know what it is, but yeah. You're also a podcaster. I do also make a, a podcast myself. It's called The Saturday Quiz. I take the ten questions from the quiz in the Saturday paper and I ask those questions uh to a, a kind of revolving guest list celebrity guests uh and yeah that's that's the nature of the podcast it's fab and we'll make sure we definitely link to it in our show notes oh thank you very much because saturday morning is perfect we we come out on a friday our listener might need a new a new um podcast the next morning um thank you so much john for joining us thank you thanks for having me so fun it's been great having you i've had a ball Melanie Tate, is it time to do fashions of the field? It sure is, Kim. What were your favorite fashions of the field today? I struggled with this one. I really, really struggled, but I quite liked the earthy colors in the shirt that Steve wore um, mm-hmm. in the fi- in the second episode when she uh, confronted the sleaze bag creepy McCreeperson. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a floral print, but it was just nice earthy colours. We're getting into those big those browns now that are really in fashion today. Like yeah. the fashions of what's going on in this episode, everybody's wearing today as well. Yeah, it is a bit that way. Uh Georgie Parker had a good red striking red turtleneck at one point. 
Mm-hmm. I liked the little green skirt on she had with that outfit. Oh, she was a bit Christmas, yeah. but the cut of that skirt was just divine. Do you know who also I think deserves uh, a special commendation is Matt. Matt Tyler's, he was bringing it in these episodes. He, I, I think he was wearing some bold colours. Uh, he stood out among the country blokes in their, you know, Luke in his 90s flanny and um, Bob in his overalls matt tyler mm-hmm. stood out to me oh that's nice Had a nice teal woolly on at one point well i'm just gonna say as per usual i love uh shelly's jumper mm-hmm. in the first episode she's got a great jumper on um also esme is bringing it with a little um gray and pink number <gasps> I was just thinking what you're wearing right now is a little bit esme i'm gonna just take a little screenshot so that we can put them side by side. Thank you very much, Melanie Tate. <laughs> Just remember it stars without makeup. Yeah. I don't have any makeup oh, you on. You look gorgeous. Thanks, Kim. Um, um, so th- I would say those were and the and the green skirt. Yeah. The cut of the green skirt were just gorgeous. So not much of a fash episode. Meh. Yeah, that's all that's right. Life. So, Kim, so we're going to say a fond adieu. We've got some exciting news in that we launch a new podcast next week. Whoop, whoop. We sure do. Uh, yeah. Weepies coming out, <laughs> coming to a podcast platform near you. But also we're going to chuck the first episode in this feed, this very feed mm-hmm. right here. So check it out and then make sure you go over to Weepies and hit subscribe because we, we very like much it. want to bring it's, you with us. Yeah, it's pretty much about the films that make us cry yeah. and why they make us cry and why they don't make Kim Lester cry. <laughs> That's basically what the po- <laughs> There's a lot of films that don't make me cry. But it's also... <laughs> It's about those films, isn't it? Because do you know what, Mel? Do you know what I think was really lacking in the podcast market? Was what? podcasts featuring two friends talking about movies? I just don't think there are enough <laughs> podcasts out there like that. Particularly if they invite a friend, another mm. friend of theirs in every now and again. Yes. That never happens. It never happens. So we- and I think it might actually be a format that would work really well. I hope, fingers crossed. <laughs> and fingers crossed it actually we get really, really rich so we can bring in, <laughs> because, we can start doing a country podcast again. Yeah, because we're doing is full-time podcasters. You don't have to be Ira Glass or Sarah Koenig to get really rich making podcasts. You can just be <laughs> Do you know, us. I bet they're not even rich making podcasts. Uh, I think Joe Rogan and Dax Shepard are the only people who are rich making podcasts. Oh, and the Gimlet guy, Alex Bloomberg, he'd be pretty rich. Do you reckon rich. he's rich? Oh, he sold that company, didn't yeah, he? They so, yeah, they sold it all rich. to Spotify. And yeah, when you sell to Spotify, yeah. that's how you get rich. But no one else is rich is doing it themselves. Yeah, so Spotify, watch this space because we wouldn't <laughs> mind selling Weepies to you in about a year or so. That being said, I don't really want to go exclusive to Spotify because... Because do you just find you... I stop listening to podcasts that go exclusive to podcasts. I forget they exist. Yeah, yeah. No, I... The only podcast I've listened to on Spotify recently is... Um, the Daniel Johns, where, who yeah, is Daniel too. Johns? That being said, while we're on the topic, if you are listening to us on Spotify right now, right at this very moment, did you know that you can rate us now? Did you know that you can give us five stars on Spotify? So please do, if you're a Spotify listener, no shade, you do you and give us five stars. That, that would be wonderful. Thank you. And our thanks as ever to Shez Robbie, who also did a whole heap of that research on Sophie Heathcote. So thank you. Is there Shez. anything Shez can't do? No, there's actually not. She's amazing. There is, also yeah. thanks to Mike Pajanic for our theme and of course Nate Edmondson who did, does the riff on it for us. Uh Kim, I'm on Twitter at Melanie Tate. You are on Twitter at, at Kim Lester. And for our next A Country podcast episode, we are stepping back in time to season three for a woman's something. What is it? What's a woman? It's a woman's what? Um, Surely it'd be like choice. It's not or a woman's, a woman's agony or something it's, like that. It's a woman's work. It's not a woman's work. Oh, I don't think it's a woman's work. It's a woman's something, isn't it? <laughs> Let me just Sorry. look it up. We do have a whole just, production schedule, which I put together and should be referring to. Here's what I love about a country practice in advance. Yeah. Is 
Like you hear that something is called a woman's work, that it's going to be on some TV show and you think, oh, it'll be written by a man, man and blah, blah, blah. We know that this will be heavily influenced by women writers. Yeah, and it is actually called a woman's work. To all the people frustrated with me right now for saying <laughs> it's something like a woman's work but it's not a woman's work, it's actually a woman's work. A woman's work. I wonder what a woman's work is. That's a Kate Bush song, isn't it? Not that I can remember. Which one is it? Do you want to sing a bit? <laughs> I mean, that would be taking a it. woman's no. work or woman's uh, work, woman's work, woman's work, woman's work, woman's work. Yeah, Wait. This Woman's Work by Kate Bush. Oh, you would so know this. You would so know this. It is. Gosh, we're so going off piste here. <laughs> but that's all right. This is what we love. Uh, <laughs> let me just hang on. Out on the Give windy no, women's work. <laughs> we will. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Skip the ad, skip the ad. Oh, I love her so much. I love her. Don't you love her? Yeah, but you know this song, don't you? Not yet. I sort of know that. You're going to, if you don't already know this song, you're going to go away and just listen to it like five times in a row tonight. I love her. She's such a genius, isn't she? I know it. Really? Oh, go listen. Do yourself a favour. Okay. okay. Do yourself a favour, Mel. Kim, that's what I'm going to go do now. Righto. Goodbye, Kim. Goodbye. <laughs>